0: we're going to continue our series uh in in 1 Samuel this morning. We're going to be uh we're going to be settling in on the life of David for a bit here. And uh, if you would open up your bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to look at a ton of verses this this morning, just a, an absolute ton. And um but we're we're going to mostly be anchored here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh so you need to at least find your spot there and then Hopefully you brought a pen and paper so you can write some things down because we're just going to skip like a stone through the scriptures this morning, like a rock across the pond. <clears throat> we have a lot to do. All right, everybody, with me? It feels like the room is scattered. Are you with me? I, we need we need focus this morning. All right. I don't normally say it like that, but we need focus this morning. All right. Um, wasn't worship good though? Yay! I love that. Um, yeah, that moment, Sam, when we were just like, I want more, Yeah, we, that was so right. We want to go there. If, if I want more and made you feel weird, it's going to get incredibly more complicated in the future. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, we need more of that. I, I love that. All right, here's what we want to look at today. Um, we want to begin to look in, into the life of David. I feel like the Lord really has a word for us this morning in the life of David. Uh, before we get there, I want to sort of just really briefly recap where we were last week. We were talking about the life of Saul and how Saul was the king that the people wanted. In fact, Saul's name means asked for. And so the Lord anointed a man that the people asked for and it ended up being disastrous. And one of the things that we should glean from that is 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 that is that the, it, it matters. It, it doesn't just matter the kind of anointing we, that we have in our life, but it matters the kind of person we are underneath the anointing that God puts on us. And one of the things that that becomes a refrain over and over in the book of Samuel is, is, is it's very simple. It's, it's that God looks on the inside. He looks at the heart while everyone else is looking at the outside. It says over and over again about Saul. It was, it was a bit of a mantra in the, in the book of 1 Samuel that Saul was what? He was a head taller than anyone else around. And when, when, when the Bible says that Saul was a head taller, it wasn't just, it wasn't just talking about his physical height. It was actually a comment about Saul's appearance, his gifts, his abilities. In terms of gifts, abilities, appearance, strength, intelligence, Saul was heads and shoulders above everyone else, but his heart, one of the things we found out after we uh, skipped through the scriptures, one of the things we see is that Saul's heart was far from the Lord. And so the first scripture I want to look at before we get into 1 Samuel 16 this morning is when Saul was rejected by the Lord in 1 Samuel 13, Verse 14, the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and he says this. He says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You need to underline that. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, here's the deal. On the surface, it appears that that Saul was rejected because of disobedience. I want to tell you, Saul wasn't rejected just because of disobedience. He was rejected because his heart was far from the Lord. Disobedience is just another symptom of having your heart be far from the Lord. The Lord doesn't reject based upon disobedience. He rejects upon, where is your heart? Disobedience is just another symptom of having a heart that's far from God. You understand that David disobeyed the Lord. He murdered a man and slept with a woman who wasn't his wife. Committed open adultery, complete disobedience, but David's heart was toward the Lord and he repented. Saul never repented. Saul wasn't, Saul wasn't thrown away. He wasn't cast aside because he disobeyed one time or even because there was a string of disobedience in his life. He was, he was cast aside because his heart was far from the Lord. And the Lord says, this next king is going to be a man whose heart is after me. See, God's always looking at the heart. He's always looking at the interior motivation. He's always looking at the secret... The hidden will—that part of a person which is often unavailable to everyone else—but it's laid bare, it's laid bare before God. In Hebrews chapter four, verse thirteen, it says, "Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight; everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him, of to whom we must give an account." <clears throat> Again, Saul's name means "asked for," and one of the things we see in the life of Saul is that people will anoint the outside. People will anoint appearance. People will anoint talents. But God is always looking at the inside. Where's the anointing supposed to rest? It's supposed to rest upon a heart that's bent toward God. And so what I want to look at this morning specifically is, what does it mean to have a heart that's after God? What does it mean when the scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart? Um, The scripture says this twice. It says it in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And then it also says it in Acts chapter 13 when Saul is is sort of given a, a recount of the history of Israel it says again that David was a man after God's own heart and that he would do everything that the Lord said what does it mean for us to have hearts that are after God That's what we're going to look at First Samuel chapter 16 verse 1 Saul's been rejected and Samuel has left Saul, never to visit him again. And Samuel's been, he's actually really upset about it. He's really upset. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. One of the things I want us to, to notice here, this is really important for us in the vineyard because this is an actual picture of what life with God looks like. We've got, a, we got a, several things we're going to hit on this morning, but this is one of the things I want to hit on. This is, this is a picture of what our life with God looks like. Samuel, God says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? I've rejected him as king over Israel. Now fill your horn and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. How does God get things done in the earth? Through people. God has already rejected Saul. He's chosen another one. And he wants, he wants the new king to be anointed. But how is the new king to be anointed? By Samuel. Anything that God does in the earth, you can mark it down. He will work it through people. And one of the things that we want to be here at the vineyard is we want to be people who are available to the hand and the voice of the Lord. We want to, we want to be people who are, who are so close to him that he can speak a word. God chooses, and then we become the agents of his choosing to go and pour anointing on wherever he says and wherever he leads. Verse 2 and 3. And then Samuel says, "Well, because he's upset, he says, well, how can I go? Saul's going to hear about it and he's going to kill me. And the Lord says, well, take a heifer with you and say to him, I've come to sacrifice with the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. You see, I love the process here. God gives instructions but, that he, but he doesn't give everything all at once. He says, he says go and anoint a son of Jesse. Very, very specific. And Saul says, well, I'm upset about this. There's a good chance that Saul's going to find out about this and, and kill me. And, and God says, no, don't worry about it. Just so God gives a few more instructions. Take a heifer. Say, I'm going to go worship the Lord. And then look at that. Little, there's a little phrase in here that's, that's so important. Verse 3. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And what is the Lord doing here again? love this next phrase. I will show you what to do. God doesn't give him the entire plan. See, a lot of us beat and bang our heads and we stay locked in fear because we want God to reveal the whole plan. God almost never reveals the whole plan. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that, that, we're, that in this life, that it's like looking through a mirror darkly, dimly. And here's the other thing. Sometimes we, 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 we do one of two things. We beat and bang our heads against the wall in prayer, asking God to reveal it to us the entire plan chances are He's not going to reveal to us the entire plan because He wants us walking in concert with Him. He wants us walking in relationship with Him. If He were to give us the whole plan, we would just get arrogant and go do our own thing. Or, the other side of the ball is, we get a word from the Lord, it seems incredibly clear, and we assume we have the whole plan. Problem. That's a problem. God is almost always in the the business of making our relationship with Him a process, and He will reveal a little something, And to the extent that we obey and go, he reveals a little more. See, here's the deal. If Samuel had stayed in his house and prayed, God, show me what to do, show me what to do, show me what to do, the voice of the Lord would have been cut off. It wasn't until he went to Jesse's house that he got the next bit of instruction. See, sometimes sometimes the next encounter with God depends upon you and I moving to what God has already told us to do. Life with God is process. Go do this, I'll show you something. Go do this, I'll show you a little more. I'll show you a little more. And then I'll show you a little more. <clears throat> and so when Samuel arrives at, at Jesse's house, this is what I really wanted to get to this morning. Verse 6 and 7, when Samuel arrived, that's what it says. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Elab, Eliab. Anybody else want to take a stab at it? When Samuel arrived, he saw Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands, stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. Shouts of praise have gone up from short people in the back. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Here's the, and this is one of the things that gets me about this whole story, is that Samuel has been a faithful prophet of the Lord his entire life. This is not his first rodeo, all right? It says in the, early in the book of Samuel, it says that the Lord never let one of Samuel's words fall to the ground. He's been faithful. Everything he's ever said, the Lord has upheld, either because he was such a friend or because Samuel was such a hearer. One of the two Probably a mixture. And Samuel comes to the house of Jesse. And when he gets there, he sees Eliab, who is the oldest. And he's the tallest. And he's the best looking. And what does he do? He assumes that this is the guy I'm supposed to anoint. Why does he assume that the anointing is supposed to rest upon Eliab? Because it's what he's seen in the past, right? He's been around Saul. And one of the things that's really instructive for us is that when we begin to partner with the Lord and, and begin to do things, man, our past experiences can be valuable or not. Oftentimes, God just wants to do something new. And one of the things that God is always interested in, He is always, always interested in the heart. Now that we've sufficiently beat that into the ground... One of the things that we should ask this morning is we should be asking these questions. What was so special about David? What does it mean to have a heart toward God? What does it mean to be a man after God's heart? Um, Some of your translations might say a man according to God's own heart. Here's what that essentially means. What that essentially means is that in a significant and powerful way, David shared God's heart. David's heart, his internal will, his internal desires, the things that he loved and the things that he liked were the things that God desired, God loved and God liked. They shared the same heart. What does that sound like to you all? When I'm talking about, David shared his heart with God. They, they had the same heart. They had the same likes, they had the same pleasures. They had the same desires. They were of the same mind about things. What does that sound like to you? Does it sound like friendship? It sounds like friendship. Anybody in here have a friend or two? If you're really rich, you might have three friends where you. Where you sh- See, we all have a lot of acquaintances. I'm, I'm acquainted with a lot of you in here, and there's, we have a certain level of friendship, but I only have about three real friends in my whole life probably is true of you as well. Some of you in here don't even have one friend in your whole life. I'm, ta- and I'm talking about like, I'm not talking about just someone you sit next to on the school bus or the guy that you tolerate at work. But I'm talking about, I'm talking about that person who, kno- who knows all your inward secrets. I'm talking about the person where everything in your life is laid bare before them. There's no hiddenness. And not only that, but I'm talking about the person who knows all your desires, all your likes, all your dislikes. Not only that, but you know their desires, their likes, their dislikes, their pleasures, their hopes, their dreams. And not only that, but you work toward seeing the other person walk in their likes, dislikes, desires, affections, preferences. Anybody in here have a friend like that? I have about three. I have about three. It's a big deal. And that's what it means when it says that David was a man after God's own heart. It means that David had walked past acquaintance with God. And he had, he had entered into the kind of relationship and it wasn't, it wasn't contractual. Can I tell you something? In the scripture, there is something higher than knowing God is my father. I know that's going to really land hard on some people's ears. There's something higher than knowing God is our Father. And it's called friendship. See, lots of people have a dad. How many of you would like to have a dad who's also your friend? See, can I tell you something else? There's something higher than having an identity uh, or having you know a, a concept or a reality of our identity as uh, the bride of Christ. That's good. There's something higher than that. Can I tell you something? I love my wife. But I don't love her because we made a contract. I don't love her even because we... We stood before God and man and made promises to one another. Those are special. It's significant. The reason I really love her is because she and I are friends. She's one of my three friends. Don't laugh. Can I tell you something? You need more friends than your wife or your husband in your life if you're looking to that one person to do everything for you, to be everything that you need, it isn't going to happen. It's too much for any one person to bear. I love you a great deal. <laughs> but there's something, there, there's something higher and it's, it's friendship and it's, it's, a, it's a mutual exchange. I share everything with my best friends. The good, the bad, the ugly. This is, this is really the word that I have when it comes to to friendship, it means living life uncensored. How many of you have friends that you can be around and um, it, you can spend hours with them and you don't get worn out checking and weighing every word? That's when you know you have a real friend. You can live life uncensored. It's uh, Everything in my heart, everything in my life is just, is just laid bare. I don't, I don't have to cover my tracks with this person. It, it, even if I say something that I shouldn't, even if I even if I say something that I didn't intend on saying, this person isn't going to hold it against me for the rest of my life. They know, they know who I really am. And even if what I said that I shouldn't have said it really is who I am, it doesn't, it doesn't overly strain the relationship. They can handle me for who I am, good, bad, and ugly. It means living life uncensored. And so somehow David had entered into a relationship where he, he, he entered into a friendship with the Lord that was uncensored. It was laid bare. We think alike. We like similar things. We have plans that are similar. Um, with my very best friends, we, we a lot of us have the similar kinds of plans. And even when our plans in the details aren't exactly meshing, uh, the, the, um, the scale and the scope and the direction of our plans are similar. See, Eric Kirchner is one of my very best friends. He and I have, in some ways, wildly different callings and giftings and plans on our life. But the scale, the scope, and the direction is a perfect marriage. We want want to affect culture in the same way. He's going to do it one way, I'm going to do it another. But friendship, Similar, similar hopes, similar dreams. And it's the reason that we're such good friends. And Not only that, but great friendships, they don't feel like a mega amount of work. See, friendship isn't based upon lots and lots of work. And even when friendships do get difficult and there is a work aspect to it, I don't mind it because it's my friend. It's worth it. That's what what it means that David had become a man after God's own heart. He He had so encountered God. He had so yielded his own heart. He had so revealed himself to the Lord. Not only that, but David began to find pleasure in God just like you or I would in our very best friend. That's, that's, a, that's a totally different thing for most of us. Most of us have, have a relationship with God that's really robotic. Robotic's not okay. Robotics sucks. I hate robotic. What do I mean by robotic? Uh, it looks like this. Uh, I get up in the morning and I don't feel too good and I'm a little snarky and You know, maybe I'll say something real mean to somebody. And then, because the Holy Spirit lives in me, a couple hours later, he's like, hey, that wasn't good. And I go, God, forgive me. And move on. Robotic. Just doing the things I'm supposed to do because I know I'm supposed to do them. Robotic. A plus B equals C. Input and output. It's not okay. That's not what we're going for. David had pressed past that and he had become a friend. He he began to take pleasure in who the Lord is. Not only that, but the Bible has a long history of people who are best friends with God. You know, God has millions of best friends. This is one of the great things. But the Bible has a long history of people who are best friends with God. Uh, Abraham, in Genesis 18, God pays Abraham a personal bodily visit. Y'all know this story? Abraham doesn't believe. I mean, he he believes, but he doesn't believe. He believes, but he doesn't believe. And and his wife, Sarah, is really kind of on the the outside edge. And God pays Abraham a personal bodily visit in Genesis 18. Shows up. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three visitors show up to Abraham's tent. And when they get there, Abraham realizes something is up. And so they cook a meal. Okay, now imagine this. God comes, bodily visit to your house. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Abraham comes. And Sarah, cook them a meal. They share a meal. They eat meat with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why would God in heaven come and visit Abraham in bodily form? Because he's his friend. That's why. And then it gets even better. Look at this. This is when when, when God he comes to reaffirm his friendship. He comes to reaffirm his covenant and his promise of a son. And then and then God, God says, and this is stunning, in verse 16, he says, when the men got up to leave, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, along with Abraham, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said to his other visitors, He said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Why would God in heaven ever feel like He owes Abraham an explanation for anything He's about to do? He's a friend. He's a f- Did you keep secrets from your best friend? Neither does God. You want to know what's about to happen in the earth? You want to know what, what, what's, what's going on in your own life? You want to know what's going to happen with your family? The best way to know is to become a friend with God. The Bible has a long history of people who are best friends with God. Moses was a best friend with God. Again, Moses was another face-to-face guy. You, you know that you're beginning to encounter friendship with God when it becomes, when it becomes less like robotic and less less like reading a book and becomes more like face-to-face. And in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, it says this. It says, the Lord would speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks with his friend. A man after God's own heart. And then there's Amos, who was a prophet of the Lord. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, it says, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Now, some of you are thrown off because we've been talking about friend, and then this verse has the word servants in it, right? Well, can I, can I? I've got a question. What kind of master feels like he needs to tell his servants what his business is? You know what I think. You know what I think this verse is right here. I think this is a, I think this is Amos taking the low and humble approach to his own life as he's writing scripture. He could have just as easily wrote friends, but in his own heart he feels more like a servant. What kind of master feels like he has to reveal his business to his servants? No master feels that way. Only friends reveal their heart. And then there's John, the beloved disciple. In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says this to his his posse. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You realize that in all the four gospels, this statement, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, it's only in John's gospel. Who was John? He's, he, he's Jesus' best friend. Jesus chose 12, he had 12 outer friends within the twelve he had three better friends he had peter james and john and within the three he had a really best friend and his name was john and he was the beloved disciple and on four occasions in the in the gospel of john john says i'm the one who jesus loved i'm the one who jesus loved and at, at at jesus's last supper in in john chapter 13 we find that john is reclining he lays his head upon jesus's breast what kind of person lays down on jesus A very best friend, right? How can you how can you have a best friend without sharing your affections for them, right? Every time I see Sam, I I don't know. I give you a hug, right? Pretty much, Sam. And if I don't, then Sam grabs me. Why? Sam and I have a really we have a we have a really great friendship. And there are certain boundaries that, that that are only suitable. And I don't like hugging. I'll just tell y'all. Freaks me out. but I, I, I don't mind. Sam comes, gives me a hug. It's great. So David was a friend of God. A lot of things define David's life. A lot of things define David's life and God but they all flowed out of friendship. There's a lot of differences between Saul and David, and I, we could do that. I, I, I really don't want to go down and make the list. There's not going to be a test. Not for me, anyway. <clears throat> but everything, everything that's distinguished David's life, it flowed out of an intimate friendship. David received pleasure. He, he, he enjoyed the Lord, and the, and the Lord enjoyed him. So the real question is this. How do we develop a friendship? How do we develop a friendship with Jesus? How do we develop a friendship with God? Well, I'll just tell you. I want to tell you a story. This is how David's friendship with God started. David's friendship began a long time before he ever was anointed. David was anointed when he was 16, Maybe 17. So one of the things that we know is that David's friendship began in his youth. It began when he was just a kid. And it began when he was watching over sheep in a field for his dad. And so David would be out in the field taking care of his dad's business. And David only had a couple things with him. He had a small herd of sheep. Flock. Goats are herds, right? had a small flock of sheep and david had he had a sling and david had a little harp and in his day that would have I mean, in our day that'd be a guitar so you have david and he's got he's got a little rifle and he's got a guitar and he's got his little flock and he, and he probably has some bread that his mom made for him and he probably doesn't have he's probably got like a little like a little skin of water with him and he, and he's out in the in the countryside and he's just a young boy and he probably started doing this when he was Way younger than any of us would really consider giving responsibility to any you know, of our children. So imagine 12-year-old David, and he's, and he's just out in creation, okay? And there's no one around. There's not a father. There's not a brother. There's no one. He's, he, he, he has no sheep. He has no companion other than sheep. And he's got his guitar, and he's got his sling. And here's the thing about, here's the thing about being a shepherd. You know, it's a, it's a full-time job but it's not like the most demanding job in the world. And so one of the things that happened to David is while he's out in the fields and while he's out watching over his sheep, there'd be a lot of times he's just sitting on a rock. And he's 12. And it's quiet. And nothing's happening. And this probably went on for months. But there was something in David that was perceptive and there was something in David that was meditative. And there was something in David that was because, it, it was probably even amplified because of his youth and because of his, of his young and tender age. See, some of us can't remember what it's like to be young and that's a really big problem. Because when you're young, the world is full of wonder And the world is full of it's full of things to be curious about. And so, if you can imagine being 12 years old and having a really simple cosmology, cosmology is just a big word for how the universe is arranged. Okay? See, my son River and my son Seth—they know way more about how the universe is actually arranged than David would have known. Okay? And so, you're 12 years old. You're sitting out on the plains with your father's flock of sheep. You've got a guitar. You've got a sling, and when you're bored, you just go out and you grab the sling, you grab a few rocks, and you just annihilate the trees, and and David gets better and better. Flocks, okay. you know, you do this, you go thirty-eight, okay, <clears throat> and just one after another, one after another, one after another, and pretty soon David is hitting trees that are no more than three or four inches round from twenty yards. Then he's like, well, thirty. 38 Are you with me? And what happens? David begins to get a skill, right? But it isn't just that. It's that one day David is throwing these rocks and he's with his sling and he's hitting the tree and he goes over to check out the tree that he's just hit. It's like, "Wow. There's 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 bugs in this tree. It's 12 years old." Curiosity and wonder, and this is the main thing, it's wonder. Where does friendship go with God start? It starts with wonder. There's bugs in this tree. They live in this tree. Huh. That's all it was. Walks away from it. Back to throwing rocks. And then one night, he's all alone. He's just eating a little bit of bread and he's just drank some water. And uh, there's not a cloud in the sky. And while he's out with his father's flock, he looks up and it's just a starry host. And it's so clear that he can see the Milky Way And this sense of wonder comes into his life. And he's only 12. And he begins to think. How did all this stuff get here? And it wasn't just how did all this stuff get here. He was raised a good Jew. His father and his mother were good Jews. He he would have known there's a God in heaven. But can I tell you something? There's something powerfully different from having a familial and communal experience with God. And there's something powerful and necessary to step out of just the familial knowledge of God and and the communal knowledge of God and stepping into a personal and intimate knowledge with God. God isn't just our God, but He's my God. And so one night, He's out there, and He looks up at the starry host and there's the Milky Way, and there's a million stars, and David, filled with wonder, begins to say, God, how did you do that? And I really do believe that, that his friendship with God began just like that. It began, it began with wonder, and he, he just began to say, God, how did you do that? You know what I think he heard that night? I think he heard nothing. And then on the next night, he went back out, and he looked up at the heavens, and he said, God, how did you do? What What are you doing? And then at one more, at one point, it could have been any night. It might have been the second night. It might have been the fourth night. It might have been the tenth night. It might have been six months later. When he looked back up, he said, "He said, God, you're really great." And in that moment, God just whispers back, "Yeah, I know." (laughs) And then God continued to whisper, "Yeah, I, I I know I'm great, David, but..." I really think you're great. I really like you. David says, Yeah, you know what? I really like you too. See, communion and friendship with God begins with wonder. It begins with it's no accident that he was he was just a child. And because of that, David writes this in Psalm eight, he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little low, lower than the heavenly beings. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. Where did that come from? Came from wonder. Came from friendship. Those were lyrics of a song. He's out there with his little guitar. What does it mean to have a heart after God? If you want to have a heart after God, if you want your heart and God's heart to commune and to match, if you want there to be harmony between your heart and God's heart, we have, we have got to be people who can allow ourselves to be filled with wonder. See, here's the deal. This is one of the problems with getting older is that we just get cynical. And not only that, it, there's, a, there's an arrogance that comes along with being older, and it's, it's the arrogance of thinking that we know how it all works. There's stars in the heavens, there's the Milky Way, and we revolve around the sun, and there's eight other planets. Uh, there used to be nine, but Pluto's not one anymore, and, we just, and we're just spinning around, and da-da-da-da-da, and blah-blah-blah-blah-blah, I know it all, I've got it all figured out, there isn't a God in heaven at all, it's just a big mess, and we're here. Arrogance? We just become jaded. Friendship with God, it, it is essential. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 18, he says... If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to receive it like a child. And one of the things he's getting at here is he's, he's trying to say, this is how you maintain a relationship with God the Father. This is how you maintain a friendship with, with, with us in the kingdom of heaven. Friendship is based upon your ability and your willingness to be like a child and to accept wonder into your life and allow wonder and curiosity To draw you ever deeper into who I am, to cause you to ask questions, to to cause you to ask questions and to wait for answers that don't come from somebody else or from a book, but come from me. So David was he was filled with wonder. And what is wonder? It's the wow of the heart. He allowed it to sink deep into the well of his life so that the effect would be worship. See, it's, it's no accident. We, you know, one of the main differences between Saul and David is that David was a worshiper. Saul never worshipped. A couple of times it looked like Saul worshipped. Saul was just doing essentially white magic. A plus B equals C. If I kill the goat, if I do this, then Samuel will come, we'll win. It was never worship. David was a worshiper. And worship comes from... Wonder. It comes from wonder. The correct response to anything amazing is always worship. And we worship all the time. Most of Kentucky spent two hours worshiping yesterday. Every three-point basket was, was met with worship and a cheer. Because it was amazing, right? It was put on display. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that if, if, if we can only find wonder and amazing amazement in Rupp Arena or in, or in the Georgia Dome, something's powerfully wrong with our life. And if we, if we, if we keep the area of our heart blockaded off from amazement and wonder of who God is and what He's made the world to be and just just the, the, the powerful expression of Himself that He's put all around us. We're delusional and we'll never enter anything other than a contractual agreement with God. I don't want a contractual agreement. I want a friendship. And friendship is based upon wonder and amazement. And so David didn't just... He didn't just experience wonder. He didn't just experience amazement, but he would respond. See, this is, so, this is such a big deal. It's the essence of worship. Worship is always a response. I see something in God, I respond. It's amazing. I see something else, I respond. It's amazing. You see, wonder can't just remain in the heart, it has to be expressed. It has to be expressed. Wonder always has to be expressed. Friendship, relationship with God, it always has to be expressed. It's expressed, you know, most genuinely through worship. But it, it, here's the reason that it has to be expressed. If you want it to form and shape your life, what's on the inside has to come all the way out, okay? And this is why response is such a big deal. If I, if, I, if I see, if I feel wonder in my heart, and then I give expression to it, what just happened? Well, the wonder and amazement in my heart, in my, in my emotions, in my seat, of my will, it just took over and it, and, it, and it exploded out of my heart, and now it's happening through my body. And so my body is beginning to agree with what my heart already believes. This is a really big deal. Like middle-aged men, especially middle-aged white men, have a real hard time with this. You know why? Because most middle-aged white guys who are playing golf I have, I have totally become so cynical and jaded that, that life is no longer full of wonder and amazement anymore and we've just become the, the masters of our own universe. And one of the things that we most need in our life is this. We just need this. I just picked on the middle-aged white guys, but it's, it's actually all of us. But especially those guys. But this is, this is something when it comes all the way through. When it comes out of my heart and it gets bigger and bigger, and it just, and my whole body and my whole spirit, and my whole being just agrees God, you're great. It's no one like you anywhere. It just reforms who I am on the inside. See, wonder has to be expressed. David was an expressor. You, you, you understand that when the Ark and the Covenant came back into. Um, came back into Jerusalem. David danced from Obed-Edom's house all the way to Jerusalem in his underwear. See, see, middle-aged white guys have a hard hard time with that. It's, it's really difficult. It, like When you become like an expresser, it bugs people around you. And David's wife is like, you know, Didn't the king distinguish himself today? And it said that anger burned in her heart. She was so disgusted with him. He's a friend of God. When you become a friend of God, you can't help but express something. Where's expression at in your life? This is a really, really big deal. So, David, and here's the deal. And you can read the distance from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem, depending upon who you read, was anywhere from 6 to 13 miles. Imagine dancing from anywhere from 6 to 13 miles in your underwear. Another question, though. Why would David dance in his underwear for 6 miles from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem? Why? Is, is it because he was getting a new box? Oh, this is a great box. It's got gold on it. I'll dance in my underwear. No, the presence of his friend was coming to be next to his house. What if your best friend, your very best friend, lived far away? I know what that's like. Lives far away. And then they're going to come home. You would dance too. If it's your very, very best friend, right? You'd throw a party. It has to be some sort of expression. And it begins with wonder. Wonder expressed. See, expression allows me to amplify God's greatness. Expression is a subtle but powerful statement of faith because it's connected to my confidence, to the confidence of my heart. Expression causes me to disclose to myself and to those around me my true beliefs. If God is great, then it must be told. He must be responded to. And it will be known. And thus my life is defined, first to myself and then to, all, then to everyone around me, which will further form my life to the pursuit of my own heart. See, yeah, a lot of people get stuck at expression. God is great, but he's not quite as big as my insecurities. God is awesome, but not quite as awesome as my fear of others, what my, of what others say and what others believe and what others think. See, we all express what we love. See, I love wine. I love wine. I read about it. I think about it. I talk about it. I search it out on the Internet. I look at blogs. I drink it. I invite people over to my house to drink it. And I even talk about it in sermons. Why do I talk about wine so much? Because I love it. I will express what I love. Every time. And this is the kind of heart that God's anointing can rest on. See, if we have, if we have the kind of heart that's bent in any other direction, it will only serve to build a personal kingdom will only use it to build a personal kingdom. God can trust the heart that's bent toward him with his power and with his presence and with his anointing. N- no other place. See, when we have a God-bent heart, the anointing is like divine accelerant. It's like gas on a grease fire. It's just God's amen to what's already resting there. You see, it says in, it says in, First Samuel chapter ten, that Saul's heart was changed. David never had a changed heart because his heart was bent all along. See, I want a I want a heart that's bent toward God. So David's heart was formed and it was bent from youth. It was it was it was formed, and his, his friendship with God began with wonder that was expressed. I mean, how, how many of us expect our leaders to write poetry? How many, how many of us expect that when Barack Obama leaves office that he should leave us a book of songs? We don't expe- no, no one expected George W. Bush to, like, on the day he leaves office to hand over the, the song book that he wrote, worked on for eight years, Right? But but David left us psalm after psalm after psalm. It started when he was a kid. It began with wonder that was expressed. But not only that, there's something else that's really important. Before David was ever anointed, before he was ever seen, before he was ever revealed, even to his own brothers, David's heart was shaped and formed in hiddenness where no one could see and no one knew. David was working for his father. We've already talked about this. David was working for his father. He was out in the fields, utterly alone, forgotten. In fact, when Samuel comes to anoint him, Jesse, David's father, won't even, don't, doesn't even mention him by name. He just says, go get the little one. <laughs> He's so insignificant in his own house that, he, that his father is, you know, there's Eliab, and yeah, the youngest one. Doesn't even, number one, doesn't invite him in for the prophet. And then number two, isn't even named. And then once the prophet presses on it, says well, we'll go get him and bring him in. David's life was lived in utter hiddenness. And, and there's a couple things for us. Uh, friendship with God is developed in a secret place and it is developed where no one sees. Jesus, Jesus says in, in, in Matthew chapter 6, hey, if you're going to pray, you should go into your room and you should close the door and you should pray where no one can see you. In fact, if you have to get in your closet, go in your room and then go in the little room inside of your room and close the door. I I used to do that. I I literally used to do that. I'm like, I just want to be obedient to God. (laughs) So I go get in my closet. But there's something about the hidden life. So friendship with God, it happens in a hidden place where no one sees and no one knows and you'll get no credit for it other than your Father in Heaven sees and He will reward you. That's what he says. Hidden. Hidden. Number two, David was in the fields, working for his father. This is a real big deal too. David developed a friendship with God that formed his entire life while he was at work. Oh. Some of us want to pursue God, and we think that in order to pursue God, I've got to leave work and go run off in a field or run halfway across the country where there's some anointed place. No, you don't. You you can find God in your secret hidden closet and while you're at work. David found the Lord while he was at work. And uh, here's the deal. If it wasn't for his job, he might never have found the Lord the way he did. If he wasn't tending sheep, if he wasn't available, to, if creation wasn't so available to him, you know, the, the thing that we don't need to do, we don't need to quit our jobs. We need to get a job and work it and find God in it. He's there. I mean, if he's ever, I mean, he said, in David says this in Psalm 139. He says, where can I go to escape your presence? I can't even get, I can even find you at work. I can find you at work. Right along with that, one of the things that we need to, to realize about our hidden times and our, our seasons where we're, we're just working a job Man, that's a gift from God. To be hidden is a gift. Here's why. Because God almost always does something big in a hidden place. God almost always starts something huge in a small place where no one looks. David in a field. Jesus from Nazareth. God, God he absolutely loves taking an insignificant no one. The eighth brother that, that no one thinks about. He loves to grab that one. It's always God's heart. So if you feel like super hidden, if you feel overlooked, man, God's got His eye on you, and it's a really, it's a really good time in your life. And you need to just welcome it and embrace it. One of the things that people do, one of the things that you and I do, is that we look for ways to get out and to be significant and to get our name known. And one of the things that we need to do is just begin to embrace the hiddenness of God, embrace the no name, embrace being completely unknown. It's a gift and a treasure. From God, and to the extent that we embrace being hidden is the extent to which He can trust us when He does reveal. Because there's always a time for manifestation, especially for friends. So in friendship, what happens with God is we will go through a long season and it's and it's completely hidden, nobody knows about it. And because because our heart gets so shaped, so turned toward God, He, he eventually he eventually says, that's a man I can trust. We share, the, we, say, we share the same heart. We think the same things about life. And he will put his anointing on it and there will eventually become a time when there's a manifestation and there's a, a, a rel, there's a time of revealing for everyone around us. And in that day, you'll be so glad that you were hidden. Trust me, on the day that you get revealed, you'll be so glad you had a hidden time. You'll be so glad you were grinding. You'll be glad for all those years you grinded and no one knew anything. I'd be so glad. I, I think about this in, in, in terms of music, okay? Um, sometimes in the last year, we've, we've gotten more invites to go and, and do music. Uh, Hannah and I got to go several places this summer to do music on a, on a bigger platform than we've ever got to go. And when you stand up in front of a bunch of your peers, especially when it's a bunch of people, you're so glad you had years and years where nobody knew anything. I remember coming off the, st- off the stage with Hannah one, one night and I said, I don't want any more than this and, and, until my experience with God and my talents get better. I want no more. This is it. Dude, I don't want any more. See, some of us are running for a stage or we're running for a spotlight. And what we need to be doing is running for a cave. Okay? We need to get developed on the inside. We need to go work our job, find God in our job, find God in the hidden place, have a childlike heart that's open and, and free and accepting to wonder and curiosity and questions and friendship and for years. Years with an S. Years with an S. Okay, you understand, David spent years completely hidden. Then he was anointed in front of who? Just his brothers. No one else knew. No one else knew. Then he spent... 13 years, at least 13 years, being chased by Saul with a spear before he was ever king. So how long did it take, take, take David to become king? 30 years. He wasn't king until he was 30 years old. He wasn't all the way king over all of Israel until he was 37. We need to, we need to embrace the process of God and realize that a lot of times that the fact that we're not put out forward, the fact that we're, not, that we're not put in the spotlight is actually God's mercy and grace toward us because it would just ruin us. We need seasons of being hidden. We need seasons to develop a friendship with God. David's time in pasture taught him how to learn from God, how to walk in friendship. And it was preparing for for the call ahead. David's job wasn't a hindrance to his calling, his anointing or his future. Shepherding wasn't an obstacle, it was the perfect preparation. Our jobs aren't a problem. When it's the right time, God will move us out. One last thing about friendship. Friendship is always about mutual exchange. With my best friends, there's complete openness and honesty. Nothing is hidden. Everything is revealed. And we shape one another. What does it mean to have a a heart after God's? It means that God can shape me. Not only that, but it means that means that I'm shaping God in some way. That isn't too big. We see it in Genesis chapter 18. God says to his companions, well, I don't feel like I can keep this hidden from my friend Abraham. And then he goes on to tell Abraham, Abraham, you know, here's the deal. Sodom and Gomorrah, really bad. I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham's like, wow, let's don't do that. You know what God says? Because you said so. Abraham said, if there's, you know, 50 people who are righteous, would you spare them? God says, because you said, that's what we'll do. And then Abraham goes, 40, 30, 20, 10. Stopped at 10, he should have gone all the way down. But what do I see in that? The bigger thing I see in that is that not only does my friendship with God shape me, but there are times and seasons where my friendship with God shapes shapes him. He, he allows something to remain available. And I, I don't understand this. I can only tell you that it's true. He allows something to remain available to us, that he, a part of him that is, that is open and malleable. It's one of the things I see in Jesus is that Jesus never asked us to do something he wasn't willing to do. It, it, there's, this, there's this thing about God. He just remains open to us. God comes to Moses and says, look, I, I've just absolutely had it with you and all the people. I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, hey, please don't do that. You know what God says? Because you said so, I won't. Something about God, something in his plan and his heart was remained open and available. It's a really big deal. One of the things it tells me is this. Not only is there a place in God that remains available for you and I to shape, but it's really important because who knows what the future might hold and we might have to say to God, God, I you know, you can do whatever you want, you're God, but if you're asking me as your friend, would you please do this? And because of that, because we've developed a friendship, God will say, I will do that. Who knows? I had this in mind, but because you said this, I will do that. That's a big deal. It begins with a childlike heart full of wonder, who's willing to express, whose confidence is in God, who's willing to repent, Saul would never repent. David repented. They both disobeyed. David would repent. Fall on his face. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Three things that all friendships require. Openness, exchange, and time. All friendships require openness, exchange, and time. If there's a lack of openness, if you're hiding something from me, then we're not great friends. We're only friends to the extent that we're open with one another. doesn't mean we're not friends at all. just means we're only friends to the, to the level that you're willing to be open with me about who you really are. Not only that, but f- real friendships are about exchange. We give and we receive from one another. And then real friendships take time. They all take time. <clears throat> if you're on the ministry team this morning, you can come on up. Here's what I would like to do this morning. this is and uh, if you guys want you guys can stand up this is um I feel like this is a, I feel like this is a morning to respond. We don't often uh do these sorts of things, but I feel like this is this is important at least for maybe maybe several of us this morning. I feel like some of us just need to respond to the Lord, and uh what I mean by that is I mean it'll look a bit like an altar call, I guess huh uh sometimes there's just there's just a, a place in God uh that can only be touched by saying. Okay, it's me.